You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. I've been talking for a number of weeks on Joseph, and I'm going to begin something else now. I want to talk about the life of David, David the Great, um, the greatest uh, of the kings of Israel. And um, we're going to look at how it all began with David, and I think we're going to see something that'll, some things that will really help us actually how many of you would agree that this has been one of the most challenging times of our lives? How many would you go there? Yeah. Um, wouldn't it be great if this were, in the final analogy, the most difficult time of our lives? And we're already almost through it, maybe. So uh, you got to figure out how to look at life to make it, right? But um, I going to ask a bunch of questions today, not just try to give answers. But here's one uh, question. Do you believe that God has solutions in the midst of what we're going through? Well, I, I, really, I really do too. And in David's life, we can find a number of parallels, a number of examples. And um, I think we can find real encouragement as we read through the, the narrative of the life of David. And I have um, I have a scripture I want us to take a look at, which is in 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 3 and 6 through 13. We're going to put it on the overhead. Let me give you a little bit of background. In 1 Samuel 16, it opens with God confronting Samuel the prophet over his lingering disappointment um, over the reign of King Saul. And God has moved on, and he wants Samuel to move on as well because God has a plan, and he wants Samuel to partner with him in it. And and don't, you know, it would be easy to think I'm talking about politics here. I'm not talking about politics. What I'm talking about this morning is how to apply some of the, uh, some of the encouragements and some of the ideas we find in the Scripture and um, also, it's interesting that our God is the God who asks us questions. How many of you honestly are aware that God has ever asked you a specific question in your life? He's asked you a question. How many of you could? Yeah, and, and that's, that's what we find here. So 1 Samuel 16, I want to read through these um, 11 verses. Now, the Lord said to Samuel, Samuel the great prophet, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. For I have provided who? Israel? No, myself. And I think we're going to see that um, what it means to be kingdom people is to see from the Lord's perspective. To be kingdom people, we need to really have our primary allegiance really to the Lord 
himself. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. And so it shows you God has a plan. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And I I think, too, it's important to see there that no matter how spiritual you are, no matter what your stature is in relationship with the Lord, you can still deal with fear. Anybody dealt with fear over the last six months? Yeah. Well, you're in good company. You're in good company. What was that? Um, I think one of our past leaders said, we have nothing but to fear but fear itself. So there's really something to that. But there's, there is Samuel, and he's, he's afraid. So the Lord says, take her heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So the Lord gives him a little bit of a sneaky plan. How many of you, Lord, you know, sometimes the Lord give you something sneaky that doesn't seem quite right, but hey, if he said do it, what do you do? You just do it. So that opens a huge can of worms that I'm not going to continue to address this morning. Nevertheless, verse 3, then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. Think about that. I will do what? I will show you what you shall do. So part of God's plan is to show us what to do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So God has a plan. He's inviting Samuel into it. Now Jesse has eight sons. Samuel has invited Jesse and his sons to come to a feast because he's going to anoint the next king. So that's that's the background. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. And here's the way the Lord looks. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but what does the Lord do? The Lord looks... At the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab, that was another one of his sons, made him pass before Samuel. And he said, The Lord, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest. And there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. I think that means fair-skinned and red-headed with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. One of the things that, as I have read through the history of the life of David, it took... God's plan in David's life from this point on took about 25 years to develop. And so I think we have to be patient and we have to 
Um, I believe we need to stay the course. I think we need to continue doing the things we know to do. I think we need to continue abiding in the calling, so to speak, where we have been called. But I wanted, I wanted to look at verse one because there's so much there and I don't know, um, how many of these I can get through, but in verse one, I'll read this again. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and do what? Go. I'm sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Well, Samuel was disappointed. And God doesn't want us stuck in past disappointments. How many of you have dealt with disappointment in your life? Come on. I know. Um, But what a great question the Lord asked Samuel the prophet. How long will you mourn for Saul? seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. Here's what was going on. God was going to move on, and he wanted Samuel to move with him. But Samuel needed to answer that question, how long will you mourn? How long will you invest emotion, energy, and sadness in something I've turned away from? In a situation that is overstated, it's welcome, it's value, it's season. So I'm talking a little about this this morning about disappointments. That was the question. How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Disappointments are unmet expectations, at least. Disappointments can come from wanting something to be other than it is. I read this years ago. Um, The only time you lose an argument with reality is whenever you have one. Let me say that again. The only time you lose an argument with reality is whenever you have one. In other words, if you're waiting for something to be other than it is, that's a... If if you take it to its... um, most serious extreme, it's insanity. It's insanity. But that's one of the aspects of disappointment. Um, Have you allowed, here's a question, disappointment to define you? Have you allowed disappointment to rob you of your faith or cause unnecessary depression? Here's the truth. Overcoming disappointments is important. Not a single one of us will avoid disappointments. We may not even avoid very serious ones. But they can provide us with opportunities. How about thinking that way? How many of you have ever seen that your disappointment was actually an opportunity? Uh, Robin, an opportunity to do what? Well, an opportunity to learn how to trust God more. They can be opportunities. They can be impetus uh, for change, to reevaluate who we are. I have a feeling the more accurately we understand who we are, the less inclined we'll be to be disappointed. Now, I know that's not absolute, but it's worth thinking about. Um, 
They can provide us with um, opportunities to choose and decide where we're going and what we're supposed to do. Disappointments can tell us more about ourselves oftentimes than our successes can. Disappointments often reveal to us misplaced trust. Are we trusting the Lord or have we placed, I'm not going to say trust in people because we need to be able to trust people. I mean, that is part of the human dynamic. But have we put too much trust in people? Because our ultimate place of peace and safety really is in trusting in trusting the Lord. I wrote a blog a number of years ago, and um, I just ran across it when I was thinking about disappointment. And um, three times after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to very close friends who didn't recognize him. Think about that. They didn't know who he was. They had been through the battles. They'd been through the wars. They, I mean... They camped with him. They ate with him. They probably were more familiar with him over three years and more focused on him over three years, the years they walked with him before his crucifixion and resurrection, more so than any other single person alive. And yet after his resurrection in three different accounts, his close personal friends couldn't recognize him. There are probably a number of reasons they couldn't. But one common characteristic with each one of those people was disappointment. In each of these three episodes, the text either confirms or implies that disappointment played a significant role in those who met Jesus after his resurrection and yet did not readily recognize him. Luke 24 chronicles the story of Cleopas, his companions, as they sadly trod the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus after the death of Jesus. Jesus intrudes himself into their narrative, completely unrecognized, and he describes him, and in asking this question, why are you sad and gloomy? And um, what they basically do is they preach the gospel, if you think about it this way, to Jesus and leave out one notable important aspect, the resurrection. So they're explaining to Jesus why they're sad, why they're gloomy, but they don't recognize Jesus. So he begins to question them, and he begins to actually, he preached himself from every Old Testament book of the Bible. That's got to be potent. Jesus preaching Jesus from every book of the Old Testament. It's got to be the greatest message anybody ever preached ever, and only two other people heard it. But he eventually unravels their disappointment, actually through communion. We have Michelle Carr going to minister communion this morning. While they're breaking bread, so to speak, they recognize Jesus, and he disappears. And then Mary, and I think it was Mary Magdalene, returned to the empty tomb, disappointed, brokenhearted, when two angels begin to ask her questions. They say, woman, 
Why are you weeping? Even the angels see things differently than we do with our limited earthly viewpoint. They knew the time of heartache was over. Jesus was alive. Hey, everybody, Jesus is alive. Yeah, Jesus is alive. That doesn't mean we're not disappointed. That doesn't mean we... we don't have heartache. It doesn't mean any of that or all of that, but it means we have access to the strength and power and resource of a person who has those um, qualities in an unlimited amount for us. Actually, the Bible tells us that person lives in us as believers. Yeah, we may want to ask ourselves questions later. Um, who could see a king and a shepherd boy? Think about that. Who could see a king and a shepherd boy? Not even the great prophet could see a king and a shepherd boy. Only the king of kings could see the king and the shepherd boy. Well, do you see the king in you? Do you see what you have in him? Are you more concerned about external things that are occupying your mind and um, uh, supplying you with fear? Or do you know the one we're talking about this morning isn't nearby? Well, he is, but he's more than nearby. He's inside. Have you recognized the king in you? Well, that's the challenge. That's the challenge. So, woman, why are you weeping? Mary's lament was that she couldn't locate the dead Jesus when behind her stood the live Jesus because Jesus was there behind her. Yet she didn't recognize him. Once again, just as in Luke 24, Jesus asked questions until Mary's illusion of the still dead Jesus evaporates in the face of the living Jesus. And so Jesus asked the same question of Mary that the angel asked. Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? And when she recognized Jesus, when she saw him. Now think about that in a spiritual sense. In your circumstance, in your situation. Uh, it's not likely that... Jesus is going to appear to you in a visible form. It's not likely. It could happen. It has happened. I'd love for it to happen to me. But there's a way you can see Jesus in your circumstances right now that changes your mind about things, that releases in you a level of faith uh, that maybe has begun to to diminish. But the angels who knew Jesus was alive and Jesus himself after his resurrection seemed to think sadness and weeping were no longer an accurate response to their situation. Now, you could analyze that situation. You could say, oh, yeah, Robin, but Jesus was alive from the dead. He had, he had done this. He had done that. Well, you've got to, you know, and so why shouldn't they be happy? I mean, there he was. There he was. He was alive. Well, it's, it's because of this. Although Jesus and the angels imparted to these disciples a capacity to 
for their sadness to be broken and their faith to emerge, they still were living in very difficult circumstances. Matter of fact, until the power of the Spirit came at Pentecost, some 50 days later, they were locking themselves in rooms because they were afraid that the same people that killed Jesus was going to kill them too. Nevertheless, Jesus' message would not be one that gendered fear, but one that gendered faith. And in 70 years, the whole town was destroyed. 70 years later, all of Jerusalem was gone. Not one stone was left upon another. But Jesus' message was rejoice. Jesus' message was you have got to look beyond your circumstances and see I have a plan. Let's say that together about Jesus. Let's say Jesus, he has a plan. He has a plan. Now, what is the plan, Robin? I don't know. I couldn't tell you, but I think in part, the plans he has for each one of us are personal plans. So, if I have understood correctly, disappointment has a way of blinding us from seeing the Lord. So let's ask these questions. Are your disappointments ruling you? What have you learned from your disappointments? Are disappointments diminishing your faith? We need to learn to trust God when people let us down. I have been saved over 50 years. Donna and I have made some pretty life-changing decisions and choices over the years. Um, I can think of at least three major ones that I'm surprised we lived through or that we excelled through or that we didn't lose everything we had. I mean, we know what it is to get from our uh, uh, lending company um, what to do prior to foreclosure notices because we were late on our house payment by two months. We, we, we've had that. We've looked at those in the mail. And it was because I made a decision to go back into ministry from business. Well, it looked like a pretty poor decision, didn't it? But at a given point within um, a month from that date, maybe it was two months, everything had completely turned around. We were completely current on our mortgage and we were never late again. Because God had a plan. Now, his plan for me in that situation wouldn't have been your plan for you. And I do not recommend most of the major decisions and choices I've made in my life. Because they were personal. They were connected to my relationship and my wife's relationship with the God who knew the future. And so I couldn't give you principles in that regard, I can give you testimonies that God met us. And I mean, um, what, what did the guy say? Uh, God will bring you through if you can stand the trip. If you can live through the episode. <laughs> and I'm not really happy about 
uh, those things don't hurt. They only make us stronger. I don't think that's true. I think they just can really wear us out and God has to touch us. But, uh, but over those years, a number of times people have challenged the choices and decisions Donna and I have made, these life-changing decisions with a house full of kids. I have actually been told about one of my decisions. They said, what you're doing is not going to work. And they said, what are you going to do when things don't work out? That's a great another question. What are you going to do when things don't work out? Let's ask that question right now. What am I going to do when things don't work out? Here's the answer. The next thing. And that's what I told him. I said, nothing I have ever done in my life thus far, apart from getting married, has lasted forever. And you know what I mean. Nothing I've ever been a part of. Things come, things go. Who knows about Queen City Church? Maybe it'll be here in 50 years. Maybe it won't. Maybe in a hundred years, people will never even know this place existed. Guess what? Are we following him? Really? That's what it comes down to. Are we following him? Are, are, are our allegiances to the King of Kings and the kingdom of God as our primary connection? Robin, what are you going to do? I'm going to do the next thing. I'm going to start over if starting over is the only option I have. That's what I'm going to do. What else are you going to do? But I'm not going to look at what are you going to do when things fail and go hide in a corner somewhere or give up or live in fear. Because God never diminishes. Jesus is as dead as he was ever going to be. And there's nothing that can touch that. There's nothing that can change that. He is alive forevermore. And we have this promise. He's coming back. We don't talk about that a lot. But he is coming back for the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our God and of our Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. We find in the book of Daniel, there was a rock that struck the, the, um, the huge idol that represented historic governments. And that rock struck that idol which crumbled. And that rock became a great mountain that filled the entire earth. And that was the kingdom of God. We have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, cannot be moved. Just like God asked Samuel, you would think through this with me. He may be asking you this morning, how long will you mourn? Think about that. God was asking Samuel, how long will you mourn? What can you understand from God's question to Samuel? What could Samuel understand? Two things. I don't have to. And I have something to do with how long I do. 
How long? Isn't that amazing how depression is oftentimes connected to things that weren't ever going to work out anyway? Oh, that's good, Robin. That's really good. Do you believe God always has a plan? I believe God always has a plan. Um, here's what I would like to do. How many of you got your, uh, your communion cups as you came in? Does everybody, uh, everybody have them? Also, uh, raise your hand if you don't. We'll have someone bring you, bring you some. Does someone help us with that? I think Andy went out in the, uh, yeah. I want to pray one thing before Michelle comes. Michelle, you can, you can come. And we're going to look at this more later. When, when the Lord spoke to Samuel, he gave him these instructions. Fill your horn with oil and go. Say that with me. Fill your horn with oil and go. Several things I'm going to pray. Here's what I see from that. One way you get out of what you're in is you, is you get active. You move. You react. And I'm praying that the Lord will fill our horns with fresh oil. I'm going to tell you something. There have been times in my life when I've gotten so filled with the Holy Spirit, nothing much bothered me. How many of you know what I'm talking about? When God has so touched you that things just roll right off, roll right off your back. How about standing up? I want to pray for us, and then Michelle's going to come lead us in in communion. Father, we're asking you to fill our horns with oil so that we can go do the things you've called us to do. Lord, we're asking for a fresh outpouring of your spirit, Lord, here in Queen City Church, here in the Carolinas, here in our nation. But, Lord, personally, personally, we ask for you to pour in fresh oil. Pour in that substance of yourself that raises our tolerance level and increases our faith. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Here's Michelle Carr. Good morning, everybody. If you're at home, you can go ahead and get your communion elements ready. If you're here, you can grab your little cup. (laughs) This week, as I've just been processing all that is life in 2020, been very aware of the reality of our public discourse about fill in the blank and how often maybe how almost always it is absent of the deeply 
personal nature of Jesus in connection to our lives. And I think if we, even in what Robin just said, Mary recognized Jesus in his resurrected form when he called her name. And every one of us in this room probably can look back on the most profound encounters with the Lord in our lives, and they were deeply personal. Or where he spoke to things that no one else could know. Where he invaded our circumstances and told us to make choices that wouldn't make sense to the outside observer. But they were what we needed to do in that moment, and he met us there. And I think as we look at the communion table, that's what was happening Luke uh, 22 in the Passion Translation says, When Jesus arrived at the upper room, he took his place at the table along with all the apostles, and then he told them, I have longed with passion and desire to eat this Passover lamb with you before I endure my sufferings. I promise you that the next time we eat this, we will be together in the banquet of God's kingdom realm. And then he raised a cup And he gave thanks to God and said to them, take this and pass it on to one another and drink. I promise you the next time we drink this wine, we will be together in the feast of God's kingdom realm. And then he lifted up a loaf. And after praying a prayer of thanksgiving to God, he gave each of his apostles a piece of bread, saying, this loaf is my body, which is now being offered to you. Always eat it to remember me. After supper was over, he lifted the cup again and said, This cup is my blood of the new covenant I make with you, and it will be poured out soon for all of you. So Jesus, here in in the moment that we're in, where the world is shaking around us, Father, we come to the table with you. We come to the table and we sit and we share the intimacy of this meal that represents who you are. We say, this is your body <laughs> and you broke it for us. And in it, we find the bread of life. We find the place of dependence <laughs> and we take and eat. We say this is your blood poured out for us. And we take and drink. Mm. We take part in that communion where you invite every person to your table. We ask that you would deepen that work in us where we hear your voice more, where we speak with your voice more, and where we walk in openness to what you're saying in this day. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, you guys are dismissed uh, for today. Thank you for joining us uh, here and online, and we will see you next week. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.